You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Happy 2023. Wow. Hey, I'm Michelle Camayo, the compliance leader here at Bolton. For those that don't know, I work with employers on a daily basis. We have these practical discussions. I'm not giving legal advice. I want to be very clear about that. We don't give legal advice here, but what we do is have those practical discussions as you work within your organization to kind of weigh the risk um, versus compliance or whatever other considerations you may need to keep in mind. The objective of the call today is really just to help employers address or solve compliance concerns and issues. We want to know what's meaningful to our audience. So Ask Michelle was created to answer the questions that mean the most to you, that had the most impact to you. So we do have a 30-minute format today. We'll do some brief updates and benefit updates dates, followed by answering a few questions that I've received through the Ask Michelle inbox. You can always email askmichelle at boltingco.com. You see that on the screen. Feel free to email that inbox at any time, and then I will read your question live on air. If you don't get to catch the entire episode today, just know that you can download Ask Michelle from Apple Podcasts and they're usually available every Tuesday. So if you were to go into Apple Podcasts and find Ask Michelle, you will see that um, there are many, many episodes. And I'm sorry, it's under Kamayo's Compliance Talk. So Kamayo's Compliance Talk. All right, let's get started. For those of you who are used to the Kamayo's Compliance Talk each month, you know that I always like to review the compliance chatter. So what have I heard employers talking about? What, I, what have I seen? What's going on in our industry or nationally? What's happening? So that's what we're starting off with. We got several things that have been top of mind for employers that I've been getting questions on. Uh, the very first one has, for the most part, slipped under the radar. But carriers are starting to get the word out, which is creating a little bit of buzz. And it's part of the transparency efforts, those federal transparency efforts. It is the transparency and coverage final rule, working also with the CAA 2021. And it's bringing the next compare the next excuse me transparency tool called the price comparison tool. It's a list of 500 shoppable services that a consumer can use to price out certain healthcare services. Now, the tool is available for plan years beginning on or after January 1. So if your plan renewed on January 1 this year, this price comparison tool should be available via your carrier if you're fully insured and if you're self-insured via the TPA. And if you've not heard about this, if you haven't heard any marketing coming from your carrier, I really recommend you reach out to your carrier or reach out to your broker and say, hey, I heard we should have this tool. How do we access it? It's a really great uh, opportunity for us as consumers using healthcare. So I'm I'm excited. So HHS quietly renewed public health emergency for another 90 days. 
It will expire April 11th. We are supposed to know 60 days ahead of ahead of time whether or not the HHS will let it expire or if they will renew again. HHS has uh, committed to letting everyone know with a 60-day notice. So really what that means is if we don't know by the end of February, if we haven't heard anything from HHS by the end of February, that means that it will be renewed. So we'll wait to, to see what we hear between now and end of February from HHS regarding that expiration. The California State of Emergency is going to end on February 28th. It won't affect uh, too many of us, so I don't talk about some of the provisions that are pretty obscure, and some of the, the items that are expiring have actually been um, coded into law. The national emergency, so there's yet a different type of emergency out there called the national emergency, and that's set to expire on February 28th. And this is important because it's tied to the extension of deadlines, and it's tied to what we call the outbreak period. This is important for those who are late uh, getting out COBRA notices or late making COBRA payments. This is important for FSA claim submissions because they also get an extension of deadlines to submit a claim. And it is also important for HIPAA special enrollment rights because you may not even know this, but if someone misses a HIPAA, HIPAA special enrollment date, if they don't notify their employer within 31 days, they are allowed an extension because of this outbreak period. So the national emergency expiring affects when the outbreak period ends. We may actually have a date for when the outbreak period ends. More to come on that. If they do uh, not extend it, then there will be more to come on the impact of that. I don't know if you all heard, but Illinois is set to pass mandatory paid leave law that can be taken for any reason. So they're the third state that has this paid leave law, which is also tied to, you know, you can take it for any reason. It doesn't have to be sick leave. It doesn't have to be, you know, family or medical leave. It's for any reason. So that's Illinois. They have not yet signed it into law. The governor is on the governor's desk. The governor came out publicly said, hey, I'm going to sign it. So we can expect Illinois to be the next state. California AB 2068. This requires employers to post Cal OSHA citations and orders in multiple languages. We wrote a blog about it. Uh, the Cal OSHA will come out with a model notice in these languages. So the employer doesn't have to worry about getting it translated. Uh, it's Cal OSHA provides it in those multiple languages. And I'm guessing you've heard the new non-emergency COVID protection regulation. It's not yet been formally adopted. We're just waiting on OAL to adopt the board approved regulations. When that happens, Bolton will release an alert and a blog. The key takeaway here that Stephanie Nobriga has let us know, because she's our safety um, guru wellness um, lead, she's let us know that employers will no longer be required to maintain a standalone COVID-19 prevention plan. So Stephanie sees this as a way to simplify the IIPP, which is great, and uh, more details to come on that once the OAL adopts it. I, got, I have another set of compliance chatter. 
I recently learned that Anthem has sent their employer customers or will be sending shortly their employer customers an email requesting certain information via an online form. And the title of the email that Anthem is sending is, is 2023 Prescription Drug Data Collection. So if you're listening and you have Anthem as your fully insured carrier, Anthem is going to send you or someone at your organization an email saying, we need you to fill out this online form. The deadline is uh, March 1st of this year. I've bolded here that employers must or should take action. Anthem needs the information in order to um, submit drug reporting on your behalf. And you don't want that responsibility. <laughs> so you want your carrier to do it for you. And if they're offering to do it for you, um, please let them. And, but you must fill out the information they need. And the information they need, just to give you a heads up, if you're an Anthem client, they're asking for the average monthly percentage of premium covered by the employer and the percentage covered by the employee. And they're also asking for the 5,500 plan member if you file, if you're uh, required to file a 5,500. So those are the things they'll be asking for. And I just want to emphasize again to please watch out for that email and do fill out that form if you're an Anthem client. Had a great question. The question regarding this RX data collection is, is the RX data collection only by Anthem? No, the requirement to report on prescription drug data is a federal requirement for all group health plans. But if you're fully insured, your carrier is taking care of all of it for you. And each carrier will likely need to collect the same information. But for now, the only carrier I've heard who's actually uh, reached out to their clients is Anthem. So I expect that all the other carriers in our market will be sending very similar emails soon. Have you all heard about the California Long-Term Care Program? Has anyone been approached by a vendor maybe to uh, kind of help market their long-term care products? And if you've said yes, if you answered yes to that question, you are not alone. But I want to set the record straight. California does not have a mandatory long-term care program. But California is heavily exploring the possibility of such a program. So the bullet point here is California continues to explore LTC programs, so long-term care. I linked the blog that I wrote on this topic. It's um, really what you need to know is we're at least a year, uh, we're at least two years away from, from anything happening. But what's, what's really going on is California created a task force, and this task force needs to create a feasibility report and an underwriting report. And then that, those reports are released to legislators and to the public. And then what California is hoping will happen is that California legislators, at least one of them, will introduce a bill and that bill will get passed. So we're a very long way away, you know, at least two years away from having a bill even introduced to the California Congress. And even if it's introduced, it must be passed. And we have no clue what's going to be 
um, what the legislator is going to to require or what plan details they will end up having in the final version of a bill that would be passed. So anyone claiming to know for certain whether we will have a long-term care program or what that program looks like is not being 100% truthful because no one knows. We don't even have a bill introducing a long-term care program. What we do know is it does seem very likely and it does seem likely to be funded by payroll taxes. And it seems likely that it will be modeled, at least in part, by the Washington LTC program that had problems of its own and actually had to be delayed to July of 2023. So if you had employees in Washington State, you should work with your payroll vendor to get that Washington LTC payroll tax up and running. Oh, it's ACA season, isn't it? I've gotten so many questions, which I'm I'm happy to get. It's it's always helpful for our employers to be able to bounce off um, certain scenarios with the Bolton compliance team. You know, what codes do I use? And that's happening as everyone is reviewing their 1095 uh, Cs and their 1094 information. So ACA reporting deadlines. Don't forget that employers with over 50 full-time equivalent employees must file. And that means if you're part of an organization that's commonly owned with other entities and it creates a control group status, the totals for each entity must be added together. So if uh, a commonly controlled group has five entities with uh, 12 employees each, they are considered an applicable large employer and each entity must file ACA forms. That's just a reminder. The next one, oh, I've gotten this question a lot. I, I, it's, it's actually um, interesting because I think everyone assumed that the California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave, SPSL, was going to be extended, but it has not been extended. So it was not extended beyond 1231 of 2022. If someone was actively using SPSL on 1231, they are allowed to exhaust the rest of it into 2023. But the uh, bill itself has not been extended. Supplemental paid sick leave not extended, at least not at this time. But what we've seen in the past is that a couple months may go by and then all of a sudden now we have a new bill uh, that might make it retroactive. But I'm not sure if we're going to see that this, this year because the California Public Health Emergency is looking to expire at the end of February, which, uh, you know, to extend SPSL would be in contradiction of, of not extending the, the California health emergency. And the last chatter I've been hearing over the last month, I would say month and a half, is the California pay scale transparency, of course. I wanted to make sure you all knew that new guidance was released via a set of facts. So if you download these slides, or you can wait for the slides in the post-webinar email, you'll be able to click on this hyperlink. The, the bad news is the set of facts were not comprehensive and did not answer the really hard questions. So I always caution, you know, don't expect much with those facts. Most of the guidance they gave via the facts is in line with what we already assumed. Uh, with what employment law experts, I should say, already predicted with regards to remote employees and whether you can link a pay scale 
and uh, scenarios where what if you don't have a pay scale? What if it's just fixed pay? Employment law experts had already uh, predicted the answer to those questions, and the facts did not give us any new info. It was exactly what was predicted. Fisher Phillips, you all know, are uh, near and dear to my heart. They published my favorite article summarizing the guidance that was released at the end of December, and the hyperlink is in the slide. All right, you all know, I talked about the Illinois uh, is set to, to pass the new mandatory paid leave for any reason. And I wanna sort of expand on that because Mineral has some really great resources. And the first thing I wanna say is, this is not news to us, but states are really making a lot of moves. They're starting to take over and not wait for the federal government to make new legislation. And so states have been making their own legislation specifically, or I should say, especially with regards to sick leave or family and medical leave, or even just paid leave for any reason. And that has been happening more and more, which makes your job so much more complicated. And I wanted to bring some resources to light so that you're, at least you know they're out there. You may not need any help with the state level leaves uh, or even vacation and PTO laws, but if you do, and you're both in client, you have access to Mineral, which is formerly ThinkHR. Right? So if you're still using the ThinkHR name, you know, they're rebranded as Mineral now. But Mineral has some really cool resources I was looking at the other day. And I wanted to make sure that you're aware that that's in your Mineral admin portal. First, they have a, a chart or a guide that's family and medical leave laws by state. And then they have a separate chart or guide with this, a sick leave by state and locality. And if you look over to the right on the screen, the sick leave by state and locality is broken out by state and then locality and it's hyperlinked. So if you download this guide for sick leave, you can click on specific states and it'll take you right to the details of each state or locality. And then this is one I found yesterday. They also have a chart of state vacation and PTO laws. I'm not sure if you all can see that this right now, but it, so it'll have the state on, on the left side, and then it'll have the rules regarding payout at termination and any notes that are applicable. So that's what's in that particular chart, the state vacation and PTO laws. Another resource I just thought you might find helpful because I think we're going to see a lot more movement on the state level in 2023. I mean, we already have, so I'm not making some great prediction, <laughs> but um, we're going to see more of it. And as we see more of it, employers and, and industry experts are going to really struggle on how to, how to come up with a, an all encompassing resource. It's going to be very difficult to do that, if not impossible, but Mineral has a great start on what they're doing so far. Okay, we're going to finish up with some questions I was asked this past month that I thought you all might find helpful as well. The first one came in from an audience member, and the question is, can K-1 partners, essentially that's a partners in a partnership, can they participate in an FSA? 
And the answer is no, that they cannot. And taxation of employee benefits is never straightforward, especially you want it to be, but it's not. And I know it can be enlightening. So I copied and pasted this chart on the screen. And it will tell you, so it shows on the left-hand screen, what kind of owner is it? So proprietor, partner in a partnership, uh, greater than 2% S-corp shareholder, C-corp shareholder, and board member or director. And then it gives you information about whether they're eligible for a cafeteria plan or an HRA or FSA. And a cafeteria plan, by the way, is just a na another name for Section 125, which are the set of rules that allow employers to take pre-tax deductions for things like medical, dental, vision, uh, HSAs, FSAs, et cetera. So a sole proprietor of a company cannot participate in a cafeteria plan or an HRA or FSA. Same with a partner in a partnership and same with a greater than 2% S-Corp shareholder. And the reason why they cannot participate in the Section 125 or the cafeteria plan is because these, these groups of people are considered owners. They're considered non-employees because the IRS views them as owners. And cafeteria plans are for employees. So if the IRS sees them as a non-employee, that means they are automatically excluded from participating in the cafeteria plan, which includes the FSA and also the HRA, which isn't necessarily a cafeteria plan. An HRA is more of a section 105, um, but it's still included on this chart. So I thought you might find that interesting. And for partners in a partnership, we see this one most often, especially when we're talking about accounting firms or attorney firms, because the accounting firms and attorney firms have so many equity partners or K-1 partners that uh, it comes up a lot. And again, a copy of these slides will be sent to you either later today or tomorrow, or you can download them now, and this chart is included in those slides. Let's see. All right, I got a question. A really great question was posed a couple days ago to ask Michelle, and the question is um, really a scenario or more of a situation where New York, if you didn't know this, New York has an overage dependent law that's actually more generous than the federal ACA requirements. You know, and the federal ACA says, the law there says that uh, plans must cover children dependents up to the age of 26. And that was a big change back in, I think it was 2012. My, my memory is maybe failing me, but I believe it was back in 2012. So that was a big change. But other states came in and they made a more generous law than the federal law, New York being one example. New York uh, policies cover children, to cover children through age nine as they are unmarried, live, work, or reside in New York, and do not have coverage through another employer or through their employer. And the question came in, can our plan cover dependents in line with the New York law? And the answer is, it depends on what type of plan you have. If you have a fully insured plan with a carrier where the state policy is written in California, states do not have jurisdiction over other state policies. 
So in other words, insurance policies written or cited in California only have to follow California state insurance law. So if you came to me and said, I have a California policy, but I want to cover overage dependents according to the New York law, the carrier is going to tell you no. The carrier is not going to maintain that flexibility because the carrier only has to follow California state laws because New York has no jurisdiction over a policy written in California. If you have a self-insured policy, these policies enjoy what we call ERISA preemption, which just means that the federal law trumps state-level laws when you have self-insured policies. So self-insured policies can choose to follow state laws as an option, but it's, it's not required. All right, I'm going to stop here. I've got a few questions coming in. Okay. Uh, someone wants me to talk a little bit more about the LTC program in Washington. So I'll, I'll just say this, which I think will help get you started. Washington passed an LTC program a couple years back, and they were set to implement it last year. But they had to delay it because there was a lot of issues within their rules and the way they administ were administrating it. They weren't really prepared. So they delayed it uh, by, I believe, about a year and a half. So the Washington LTC program formally gets off the ground in July of this year. And what that means is employers that have Washington employees must set up a payroll tax beginning July 1 of this year. So employers with Washington employees uh, must start to fund the LTC program via a payroll tax. So you'd want to contact your payroll vendor to get that process going. I have a specific question about, a about the new bereavement leave. And with that specific question, I'll have to get back with you to the person who posed that. I won't be able to answer that on this call, but I can answer it later on. Someone asked if there are any credits available to employers for the California SPSL. Yes, last year, they, the SPSL law was amended to create sort of this grant program. It's only specific for certain employers. And I don't have the details off the top of my head, but I can send you those um, after the call. But the, the relief fund, or it was really a grant that they set up. If memory serves, it's set up for small employers to be able to use, but I will get you that information. No question on the pay scale transparency. Someone says, our company typically advertises starting wages between 25 and 50th percentile. When an in-house employee asks for their pay scale, is it okay to provide the typical 25 to 50th percentile or the whole scale from minimum to maximum? That's going to be a question that doesn't have guidance on it. I really think that just based on what we know of this law, that you would want to use the whole scale and not the 25 to 50th percentile. And I think maybe even for employee relations issues, you might want to use the whole scale because what if you gave them only the 25 to 50th percentile, but they're outside of that range? You might inadvertently create some negative feelings. Uh, but then again, on the flip side, you may inadvertently create some really positive feelings that they're making a lot more than that. Um, so I really think from uh, in the lack of, of guidance that we have, uh, it, it just seems more appropriate to give them the whole scale from minimum to maximum. But 
I don't think we have any regulations or legislation that that you couldn't just give them what you would um, typical 25 to 50th percentile. And I have one last question before we move on for the ACA, very timely. Is the filing requirement 50 or more full-time equivalents at any time throughout the 2022 year, even if they were employed for a short period of time in a year? It really depends. It's not necessarily if you went over 50 one month out of that year. It's an average. So you would uh, add, sum up all months and how many employees you had and then divide by 12. And if you had an average of 50 or more in each of the months, then you would be considered a, an applicable large employer. So there, and there's also a lag. So if you weren't an applicable large employer until 2022, you don't have to start offering affordable coverage or minimum value until 2023. And then your first report would happen in 2024. So if you have specific questions on that, because it's not a, it's not a, a simple concept, feel free to, to email Ask Michelle after the call. Speaking of the ACA, I've gotten several questions regarding what line, what codes to use in line 14 and line 16, which is very normal this time of year. So I wanted to share a question that I thought might help some of those on the line. And someone had asked me, when is it appropriate to use the ACA line 14 code 1A? So 1A indicates, it, 1A, let me say, is we call it the gold standard because uh, 1A tells the government that you offered a minimum value, affordable coverage that hit the FPL safe harbor. And the IRS says that when you use code 1A, you do not have to use anything in code uh, in line 16. You can leave line 16 blank. Well, it's kind of considered the gold standard. Employers that offer a minimum value medical plan that costs an employee for single coverage less than the FPL level of 108.83, so $108.83 in 2022 each month. So if I, as the employee, had to pay less or the same as 108.83 each month for my uh, lowest cost single coverage plan, then you can use code 1A. In other words, the employer can offer a number of plans, but as long as one of those plans had a single coverage rate that was below or at 108.83, then the employer can use 1A. Me as the employee, I don't have to enroll in that lowest cost single coverage plan, but as long as it was available and accessible to me, then the employer can use 1A. So let's say you offer an HMO to California employees and uh, a PPO to the rest of your multi-state employees. And the HMO is set at 108.83 or below for the employee cost per month. But the PPO for out-of-state is much higher. Well, then you cannot use code 1A because your PPO uh, your multi-state employees are not able to access the HMO, so you would not be able to use 1A. You'd have to look at, you know, uh, 1E most likely. And so talking about the ACA, I wanted to give you the due dates for furnishing the 1095Cs to employees. That's March 2nd. For filing paper with the IRS, it's February 28th. And for filing electronically, is March 31st of this year. 
All right. We are wrapping up. I'm sorry I kept you five minutes longer. This is just our resources page. So the Bolton blog, if you're not signed up or subscribed to the Bolton blog, you won't get a lot of, of the local or state level alerts. And that's because we don't want to inundate your mailbox unless you opt into it. So you would have to subscribe. If you have benefit-related questions, Bolton clients, feel free to contact your team. And if you have minerals, because you're a Bolton client, then you, you all saw my mineral resource slide. They're also a good resource for the latest employment news. They have sample forms, policies, um, employee and supervisor trainings, and, and much more. And, of course, you can ask an expert. You can email or you can give them a call. Since you're so off the press, Fisher Phillips released 10 things to know about the new Cal OSHA permanent COVID-19 regulations. So they just released it this morning. Fisher Phillips, to me, they always have a good read. I like their format and their writing style. So I, I just linked their article for you that dropped this morning in case you were interested in reading that. And if you're still working with CCPA compliance, Always remember Fisher Phillips has the CCPA Resource Center, which has forms and templates and articles. And you can also uh, pay Fisher Phillips a flat fee, and they can provide you semi-custom data as well. So that, that could be helpful if you're struggling with CCPA compliance or if someone at your organization is. You can check that out. That's it for me. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And have a great rest of your month, and we'll talk again next month. Bye, everyone.